Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, August 16th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to have a little talky talk. We're going to discuss the news of the world, the news of the day. And in doing so, we are probably going to have to pull some stuff out of a variety of different sources, sometimes even out of our ass. No, no. I'm yeah, we're doing stock picks. Yeah. Uh, you Today's know, stocks, know. buy, sell, do get a derivative. Buy, buy 40 buy, bags of garbage. Buy, buy triple leveraged of this stock. I don't know. They have weird stuff. Um, but what are we? What? Yeah. Yeah, it makes as much sense as mad money. Yeah, yeah, but no, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we are evaluating all of these different places that we're getting information from in the light of facts, and also hopefully in good faith, assuming that everyone's out there trying to work towards pro-social goals, not just dunking on people just to dunk on them. Not too much, anyway. And uh, during this process, our goal is to keep ourselves and all of our wonderful listeners adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we realize that we don't know everything. We aren't perfect. Um, we're not even perfect arbiters of being in good faith, but we're trying. You know, it's it's more of an ideal than a uh, rule. We're so, trying in good faith to be in good faith. Exactly. You know, try, and you know, but we do have viewpoints. We we're not the opinion. You know, the viewpoint from nowhere. And we're also, but we're also not on the ivory tower. You know, we realize that other people can look at the same information and come to different conclusions under the assumption of good faith. So, with that in mind, Mr. Evan Kelly, what's our uh, what's our first topic today? First topic is a new Netflix documentary that dropped this past week called "Untold: Malice at the Palace" about the 2004 Pacers Pistons brawl in. Michigan. So I want to tee up kind of what the event is for people who yeah. don't know about it. Yeah. So in I had certainly never heard of it before watching this documentary. So I think and, it is and we'll probably uh, be into spoilers territory too. <laughs> yeah, good call. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna watch we're gonna talk about this as if you are familiar with the brawl. So if and you if you have watched the documentary now, it's only like an hour long, you know, it, it's not a big behemoth. Yes, yes, it's, very manageable. It's a, it's a manageable documentary. So, with that being said, thank you for the disclaimer, Joe. In 2004, there was a pretty steep rivalry between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons. The Pacers were attempting to win a championship near the end of the career of their all-time greatest franchise player, Reggie Miller. And... In the previous season, the Detroit Pistons also had a fantastic team. They beat the Pacers in the conference finals and then went on to win the championship that Reggie Miller and the Pacers fans likely thought that he should have had. So there's an intense hatred between these two teams. So the following season, the Pacers come to the Palace at Auburn Hills to play the Detroit Pistons. And it's a hotly anticipated matchup. It's a rematch of the previous year's conference finals, and things go completely off script. The Pacers, despite the fact that they you know, had been very close between them and the Pistons the past season, the Pacers are dominating. They are blowing out the Pistons. It is not a competitive game, and the home court fans don't like it. So late in the game... For whatever reason, even despite the fact that they're winning, 
by about 15 points, I think, is where, where the game yeah. is at at that point. They um, like 30 seconds left on the clock. Yeah, like I think it's 46.7 or something, you know, less than a minute to go. Um, the Pacers still have their starters on the court, and Detroit center Ben Wallace is going in for a layup, and it's good form, I guess, in the NBA culture to just let him score if you're up by that much with so few seconds left in the game. But Pacers forward guard, I don't know what our test was at the time. Um, He, Ron Artest. Basketball player. Now known as Meta World Peace, uh, but at the time known as Ron Artest, he committed a hard foul against Ben Wallace, which was not well received. And Wallace shoved him back after the play was over. At this point, the two of them were exchanging words and teammates were intervening in an attempt to stop any further violence when Artest lays down on the scorer's table on the side of the court. Then a fan from the stands throws a cup at Ron Artest and drills him, at which point Artest and several other Pacers players charge into the stands and a melee ensues between players and fans in an unprecedented explosion of violence in North American sports. So the fallout was immense. The Pacers players involved were suspended with unprecedentedly large suspensions. Ron Artest did not play again for the rest of that season. Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson also received somewhat lighter suspensions. And moving forward, the NBA instituted a bunch of culture rules in an attempt to, I guess, prevent future violence. Although um, I don't think the dress codes that they set up really were responsible for. (laughs) Just like a reverse, uh, you know, blaming the victim for a rape. Like, yeah. Were, were, (laughs) were they they dressed up to, uh, you know, do violence? If he had worn a suit in the pregame press conference, he wouldn't have hit that guy. He was just Um, asking for it, wearing his jersey. (laughs) On the court. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's the gist. What what this documentary does, I enjoyed this, this documentary. It provides additional context into what was going on in the league at the time, what was going on with the players and their own mental states that produced this explosive and game-altering event. So, Joe, what did you think about the documentary or about the events of the Malice at the Palace? What, uh, you know, what, what, what you got rolling around in that? that I, I, yeah, I thought it was an interesting documentary. And, you know, there most of the documentary is really just, like, setting up to the incident. Like, just so much of it is backstory and then the actual incident. And it's like... Um, you know, there, it wasn't just that, you know, the Pistons and the Pacers had had a really close game the year before, you know, like, uh, Evan said, you know, is getting towards the end of Reggie Miller's career. So there was some pressure with that. And then also just, you know, the, what was going on in the individual participants lives at that time also led to, you know, the kind of, I mean, it seems, you know, whatever happened led them to go and do what they did, you know, and, you know. Uh, 
Yeah, a note on that. One one of the things that I found really interesting that I didn't know is that Ron Artest has this reputation as a crazy player, but at the time, he was actually trying to take his mental health very seriously. There was a team psychologist who traveled with the Pacers that season. You know, he had been dealing with anxiety and depression, and he when he laid on the scorer's table, that was actually a strategy that his therapist had taught him to stop and slow down and breathe and count to five when he was feeling overwhelmed. Of course, all that went out the window when a fan hurled a projectile at him. Well, yeah, it was seen as like a stunt, you know, uh, uh, like, mm-hmm. a, a, like a, a sign of disrespect. You. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, and so that, and then just how, you know, we're, it, it was very interesting how the documentary got perspectives from like all different types of people, like even two policemen who were like at the stadium at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, I, I thought it was really interesting because at one point I forget who said it was like, you know, I think Reggie Miller was like, you know, there's scuff ups all the time and, you know, I didn't, you know, don't think anything of that. And that's kind of what it was. You know, the guys were just kind of going at it, you know, a little hot headed, but, but nothing was violent. And, you know, another one of the players, you know, in his testimonial was like, you know, the fans don't know is that, you know, we're like all friends. So, <laughs> you know, there was never imminent danger of, you know, the players actually breaking out and, for real fighting with each other. Um, you know, it was just kind of a for show dust up, you know, with some hot heads and, you know, they were going to cool off in a sec. And, but no, yeah, uh, the Detroit fans took it very seriously. And, you know, when the dust up happened and someone threw, threw the beer at Ron Artest and people went out, you know, so the players went out of the stands to like, um, you know, retaliate, you know, which seems pretty justified. Um, But then just everything just kind of broke loose after that. Well, it's tough because I want to I want to talk about this issue of what's justified and what's not, because that was the most interesting thing. The internal debate I was having watching it, I guess, because there's a fine line between explaining why something happened and then saying that those events are justified, right? So Ron Artest, like a fan throwing a cup at Ron Artest and him charging into the stands. I understand why he would respond that way, but I still don't know if I would call that justified, right? Like he wasn't going to be in any more danger. He wasn't defending himself by charging into the stands. He was retaliating. And I'm, I'm not obviously the guy who threw the cup was the fucking biggest idiot in the stadium that night. Yeah. But, you know, when Ron Artest ran into the stands, he didn't even attack the correct fan. You know, that's not that's not justified. That's not self-defense or like um, Jermaine O'Neal was was really weird in this too. another one of the Pacers players, because. Someone else, a a really, really stupid fan, like, came down to the court and squared up against Ron Artest, like, 6'7", muscle man, all pro Ron Artest, like, oh, you're really gonna fucking take him? Okay. Um, And so Jermaine O'Neal just, like, races over 
and cold cocks the guy and and he's he's saying in his very somber interview you know i was just defending my teammate but like dude i don't think ron artest needs your help to defend himself against a like not super in shape fan who's just drunk and coming down onto the court yeah, they tried to make it this big thing about they're they're just defending themselves, and sometimes that was true. You know, if if a fan comes up to the court like fists drawn, you get to defend yourself. But I don't think you get to swoop in from the side and, and sucker punch the guy. <laughs> you yeah, know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, and then it it's also just like the environment of it all. You know, they were trying to get into the dynamic where it's like you know. These ball players are, you know, it's a very heightened situation playing an NBA game. Mm-hmm. And it was even more heightened because of the venue, because you know, Piston fans are, at least at that time, were quite intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, you know, there there's this kind of rule of a separation. You know, there's the players and staff and, you know, there's the event area, which is the court. And then the fans stay in their areas, which is the stands and, you know, kind of, you know, is making it seem like kind of once that divide was broken, it was like, you know, just kind of everything went loose mm-hmm. and, you know, other fans were, were getting on to the court um and you know throwing whatever they had in their seats which i mean that's somebody trying to throw their seat yeah 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 trying to loosen their their stuff picking up the folding chairs on the side of the courts hurling that yeah some some really bad shit yeah and it's just um but then you know in the aftermath of it it was just you know instead of a situation where you know, fans overstep their boundaries. And then also some of the NBA players probably acted a little bit more egregious than they should have. It was, you know, played off in the media as like these uh, NBA players as thugs. You know, Yeah, which... the media immediately took it in the most racist direction possible. <laughs> like, yeah. generalizing about the entire league. Oh, they're all... Yeah, thugs was the word they kept using. Well, yeah, which, it was yeah. like because they listened to hip-hop that they went and punched this guy who threw a beer at them. You know, like, like insinuating that hip-hop sagging pants and baggy clothes was, was the cause of all of this and mm-hmm. you know just how racially coded it all was i i just thought you know it doesn't surprise me and you know learning about these kind of events that happened in my lifetime just how racialized they became um it was just kind of astonishing you know it was it was like these big black men you know, big, strong black men who were star athletes did something that was not agreeable. And then all of a sudden, basically all the media had to come and do a take about it and how that they were like, I don't know, just prima donnas and thugs. Yeah, they they did something untoward and then their entire culture 
came under attack. And what's really interesting in the documentary is that just how ubiquitous the language used to talk about it was. They have like a supercut of like 15 different sportscasters calling them thugs. Like, it's ridiculous. Is hip hop culture coming in, you know, and, you know, we'd probably be like now it's like, it's even hip hop culture, you know, (laughs) it's something that's all that bad that needs to be demonized. Um, You know, I mean, I guess today's hip hop culture is a little bit different than what it was coming out of the nineties, but even still, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, um, it's just wild how like to an eye an eye from 2021 looking back and just how completely racialized the whole incident came in the media where yeah. there was you know if you were to take it in good faith there was some bad actors on both sides but it doesn't require a con condemnation on an entire lifestyle yeah or even just like cultural taste Mm -hmm. because there's there's still some people who would like to believe that a time like 2004 was post-racial right that that it was really just people responding to the bad incident that occurred but with the benefit of history and what we understand about language and it's impact it's so clear and there's there's gonna be little pockets like that all the time where as soon as something bad happens even to this day in involving african americans even if they may be culpable individually the chorus jumps out in unison to use this type of language to condemn the culture instead of the individuals and that is by definition what racism is well yeah somebody said in the documentary they were like yeah frights are going on every single day in nhl hockey and no one's blaming rap music you know no one's blaming canada (laughs) yeah yeah it's just i mean i could also make a, a kind of counter argument that hockey fans don't go on the hockey well and then also hockey that's just like an accepted I mean, whether rightly or wrongly, that's been part of it. Whereas, and it's a contact sport. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but I mean, basketball th- is still a contact sport, it, just not in the same blatant way. Well, um, I mean, but definitionally, like, never mind. This isn't the productive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but regardless, fighting is not a normal part of playing you know, a basketball game, you know, you're not going to a basketball game. And it's like, Oh, I hope there's a fight today. <laughs> like you would just be seen as a maniac. Like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you think is going to transpire in this game? That's going to, you know, make a fight happen. But, but yeah, you get enough boozed up people and, and, you know, that was just also another point, how the people, you know, in the stands near the court weren't the normal people, you know, near the court, you know, Mm -hmm. all the season ticket holders have basically left because the game was, you know, wasn't a blowout, but it was definitely decided. And, um, so, so the riffraff came down (laughs) the riffraff, Ooh, the riffraff. I hope to be in the riffraff someday. Yeah. Yeah. Just some, some, 
go go be the riffraff at your local little league games you know okay yeah just show up sure blasted (laughs) i'm sure those those refs get paid enough to deal with my abuse oh yeah yeah oh man but yeah i i thought it was an interesting documentary and a look into how how multifaceted an incident like this can be and just how different the discourse after it was than what would be had today. Yeah, yeah. So I I come at it from almost an opposite perspective as Joe, where he'd never really heard about it and all of this was new information. And granted, I got a lot of new information out of it as well, but I, as as long as I can remember, I've known about the malice at the palace. Like, I probably wasn't old enough to be cognizant of it when it happened in 2004, but I don't remember when I learned about it because I've it just, it's one of those things that I've always kind it's of known. It's just part about. of the knowledge. Yes, yeah. And I just think it's so fascinating. And I think trying to articulate why that is is because, you know, there's this sort of general social bond that keeps us safe right like i'm uh, we we all kind of agree not to do harm to each other at least in a sort of physical sense on a day-to-day basis and so the malice at the palace is so engrossing to me because it shows how quickly those bonds can be broken under the right set of circumstances mm-hmm. and so I really thought it was interesting to see all of the wheels in motion that led to the circumstances where that breakdown occurred. Right. So I, yeah, go ahead. It it reminds me of an, a YouTube video that was kind of something similar where it, uh, went to an NFL game where something similar happened. I think I had you watch that video. It was like, it was like the Browns versus yeah, the, the Browns Steelers. It was it was Browns Steelers because that was the big um, Miles Garrett attacking Mason Rudolph with his helmet. Um, I watched. I was watching that live when it happened. Oh uh, man, yeah, <laughs> that was another crazy moment where you're just like, oh shit, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah that that one was crazy. The refs fucked up, and there was high tensions. People were way drunk, and you know. I don't People think I've seen not. that video though. I don't oh, think I should share. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, good. It's called like the game the NFL doesn't want you to know about or something like that. You know, <laughs> a very internet-y, clickbaity title, but yeah, it's, it's good. Um, I think that was like a primetime game too, like Sunday Night Football or something. Well, yeah, and the, you know they took the players off the field for their safety, but then the NFL commissioner was like, "Hey, you got to finish this game," and then like it was, yeah. Yeah, quite a scene. So, but that's but that's just also like any event where you get a lot of people and you also allow drinking. Like this is why when you go to a sports game, there's like seemingly a bunch of arbitrary rules about things. That's because, you know, the the difference between everything just being going along and orderly and a big old brawl you know can be just as much as a beer unthrown you know (laughs) yeah so it's it's yeah 
that's why there's so much security and rules and all that kind of stuff in big sporting events because it could just become a brawl. Yeah. And and that all changed after this incident. So it is it is kind of a landmark event in sports history for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting. Oh yeah. I definitely thought it was interesting too. Okay, I'm I, glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, I did like it. Um, you know, after watching The Last Dance and this, like, I really like kind of, you know, I don't know if I could ever keep up with the NBA and actual basketball, but NBA stories make for good, like, you know, documentary series. Because it's, you know, there's a lot of people who are pretty, you know, you know, somewhat smart and articulate, but there isn't so many that it's like overwhelming. Like, you know, you kind of have a fixed set cast of people and, (laughs) you know, you can, you get all their perspectives and, you know, it, it doesn't become too overwhelming, you know, like, like maybe a football team with, you know, just the small army of people that come along with it. Whereas, a an uh, NBA team is 15 people, you know, a little more manageable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, like if you're it. interested, this is Untold Malice at the Palace on Netflix. I think that Untold is going to be a series of sports documentaries that they do. Um, I think this is the only one that's about basketball, but nonetheless, there should be some other ones coming out, coming down the shoot soon. So, who knows? Maybe if they're interesting, uh, coming down the show, we'll revisit shoot. them. The, the the show shoot. Yeah, the shoot show. The show shoot snowshoe. Ooh, where we go, boo. And boo. Uh, <laughs> on that note, Joe, what else are we talking about? Oh man, we're about to get upbeat, Evan. Oh yeah, um, good. Yeah, we're going to talk about the climate. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Well, this became warranted, um, you know, even though every day we're, you know, slow motion crashing into a climate crisis across the world. Um, just this last week, the IPCC released its new climate report, which me being stupid, I didn't actually write down what IPCC is. I memorized um, it. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to forget. Uh, it's the Intergovern- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a body of the UN, so United Nations offshoot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of the, uh, you know, the gold standard of, you know, where cl- – uh, aggregate climate sciences and they put out this report like every six to seven years that is a just kind of a compendium of how things are going now uh the state of things and how things are looking in the future and um uh spoiler alert it didn't get a whole lot better um (laughs) in line with tradition of ipcc reports uh the predictions have gotten worse um one thing that was notable as a headlining factor is that this report um finally kind of like 
as close to 100% uh, as possible confirmed that human activity is causing climate change, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure for most people listening to this, this isn't like a new revelation, but they did a lot of math with models and statistical and stats and, you know, all this kind of stuff to model that, you know, if you know, what the world would have been if we hadn't started releasing a bunch of carbon into the air and what we're currently at. Um, And where we're currently at is 1.09 degrees Celsius of warming above kind of base level. uh, Like pre-industrial levels? Yeah, pre-industrial levels of temperature throughout the world. We're at 1.09. The original goal was to staff it off at 1.5, and that goal is basically impossible now. Um, Or not impossible, but extremely highly improbable. Yeah, it, it would take a Herculean effort, and the global community has, as of yet, not demonstrated anything close to the level of commitment that would be required within, yeah. like, four years. Like, super short time frame. Yeah, yeah. Like, one of the big one of the big uh, landmark takeaways from this is that CO2 equivalent emissions need to peak within four years if we are going to... Um, keep it below two degrees Celsius. Um, And what does that mean? So um, for all of human, well, not all of human history, but since the industrial revolution, uh, emissions from human related activity have been increasing, um, you know, all the way from the very beginning until now. I mean, I'm sure there's some points where it was down a little bit, but Um, on a trend it's been increasing and what it's saying is that within the next four years we need to go from continuously increasing to reaching its maximum uh, emissions output for a year and then going down from there Um, that has to happen the peak the maximum point of emissions per year has to happen within the next four years. Otherwise, it's not looking like we would be able to keep warming within a two degrees Celsius band. So, Joe, why is two degrees Celsius such an important benchmark? Well, all of these benchmarks are in some ways arbitrary. Like, there isn't a real difference between one point not you know it's not like we get into a whole new class of things when we go from 1.9 degrees celsius warming and 2.1 degrees celsius of warming but so i do want to i do want to say a note here because there is i don't know if it's at two degrees or or some other but there is a point that we're actually really worried about because there is in the polar ice caps a certain amount of greenhouse gas that has been trapped in ice and it's stored there. And so if we reach a point where too much ice melts, 
That greenhouse gas will obviously no longer be trapped in the ice that doesn't exist, and it will enter the atmosphere, and we will enter into a process of runaway climate change, whereby even reducing emissions to zero cannot undo the damage that that amount of ice melt and gas release has caused. So there mm. is, at one point, again, I don't know if it's the two degree mark or some other mark, but there is like a bright line where we're kind of fucked if we don't stop it at that level of warming right but just with every temperature rise our world is getting different so there are some interesting graphs in the report um one showed all the regions of the world and um all but four regions were marked as having increases in extreme heat events and two of them didn't have data for them and the only two that were seen as not having changed were um, where i believe most of our listeners are which is central north america and eastern north america um, which is just also very um <laughs> just but seems if you if you are listening to us in austria we love you, we appreciate you, and we want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and, and recommend it to all your Austrian friends. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I just when I saw that, it was like, wow. So this whole, the whole world is experiencing all of these extreme weather events or, you know, increases in really high heat, you know, events. And except for where I live and then also where like the legislating capital of the United States is <laughs> <laughs> like, how could that be more like, I don't know. Us Counterproductive. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Us centric, you know, us centric. <laughs> um, so yeah. Extreme heat events are increasing all over the world. Like I'm sure our uh, couple of West coast listeners you guys have been experiencing some very extreme heat events over this year. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's just been happening all over the world as well. Um, there was not a single region in the world where heat events, heat event activity had decreased over the last decade, um, which just shows the show something. And, you know, and also there has, you know, what we lost didn't get in heat events. We've gotten more higher, you know, heavy precipitation events, which mm -hmm. is also just, I mean, that just changes things, you know, like if you have a ton of water and rain coming in, you know, it's harder to do crops. It's harder to, um, you know, control your, you know, the water supply in your local area, you know, that prone to more flooding and all that. Kind yeah, of exactly. Stuff. Population centers in low lying areas have to be relocated or else face massive casualties. Right. I mean, I just saw something from the German flooding, you know, it was like a drive through of the area when, you know, before the flooding and after the flooding. And it's like, it's like going from the, you know, the highest standard of the first world to going to a third world country, like just how devastating flooding can be, like even just washing away a full, you know, asphalt road. <laughs> um, yeah, just the power that that has. And, and then also instances of extreme drought. So again, West Coast listeners, 
you know, that's been happening over there as well. So the, it's getting harsh and we're only at 1.09. Um, just the more, just the higher it gets, the more stuff like that's going to keep happening. Um, the more extreme weather events are going to occur because that's what climate change is like pre-industrial times. I mean, there was still extreme events, but they happened somewhat rarely and it was more of an equilibrium in the world. Um, whereas now, um, things are in disequilibrium and, you know, just all this crazy weather stuff is happening and it's affecting people. So I think it's worthwhile to actually explain the connection between some of the weather events and the rise in average global temperature, because I feel like sometimes science communicators don't do the greatest job of actually connecting the dots. Like it's very intuitive that a hotter climate would produce more wildfires, but I want to, I want to explain why that is at least how it's been explained to me. So I guess that just from from time to time it's an inevitable fact that there are going to be smart sparks and small fires that start in places like california traditionally this hasn't been too too big of a problem because once a wildfire encounters like a a tranche of wet leaves or wet grass it can't burn through that and so the fire dies out however when we're seeing this increase in global temperature and an increase in extreme heat that is drying out all of the flora that normally could potentially act as a barrier to wildfire spread. So now when sparks get kicked up and small fires start, everything around it is going up like kindling. I mean, the current fire in California is the largest wildfire in the state history. Am I correct in saying that? Um, I'm not super familiar with the fire, but I would... I. I'm not going to dispute it. Okay, great. As long as I wasn't blatantly wrong, someone someone can correct me, which we <laughs> do. We accept corrections. We do. Um, so anyway, that that's that's what goes on is that we always have like little fires that pop up, but when there's a hotter, drier climate in parts of the world, this magnifies the ability for those fires to spread. Yeah. Um... I've also heard an interesting one about um, getting colder temp extreme cold temperatures because of global warming. Um, so like a few years ago, if you lived in the Midwest, there was this polar vortex that came mm -hmm. through for a few days, you know, doing like, you know, depending on where you're at, like around where I was, it was like negative 30 temperatures. Um, and the way, you know, you would think, how does this extreme cold, you know, factor into global warming? It's coldness. Um, Fair question. Yeah. So up in the North Pole, there is a whole heck of a lot of cold, um, as <laughs> you would expect. And it's all kind of contained. Um, I don't know the exact term for it, but there's this uh, jet stream that kind of goes around the uh, North Pole, I guess the polar jet stream i'm kind of out of my bounds here i'm over my skis a bit but <laughs> anyway there's this jet stream that contains all the cold within the very top of the planet and keeps the cold where the cold has traditionally been well 
due to uh, global warming, a, um, a warm front was able to push into that Gulf Stream and make gains into the northern regions. And when that did it, it popped out the Gulf Stream to way farther south than it ever really goes. Kind of like, you know, like if you have one of those uh, like stress balls, when you squeeze on it, it it pops out in a different area. That's mm-hmm. like what this was. So because of warmer temperatures and a warm front having energy in one part of the world, it pushed the polar Gulf Stream down so far into like Wisconsin and northern part of Illinois that, you know, brought those extreme cold temperatures down with it. Whereas if the temperature had been more moderate throughout the world and in that specific area that pushed the the stream, then, you know, it wouldn't have pushed the stream as hard, you know, hmm. maybe it would have just gone through Canada, you know, or just not even at all. Um, Interesting. And this is something that can happen naturally, you know, if if it had been without human interference and, you know, rising the temperature through uh, CO2 emissions. But again, it's just something that happens a lot less frequently or, you know, it's more of a freak event instead of something that happens every few years. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, global warming is affecting a lot. And I mean, you know, Evan and I, we're and I'm sure most of our listeners, you know, we're we're in the kind of climate privileged people. Um, you know, we have air conditioning, we have uh, infrastructure out there that will generally take care of us. And we also happen to be in the area where the extreme weather events are kind of, you know, the most mild. <laughs> um, so, but there are some areas of the world where it's really affecting people. And, you know, we're not going to be the people most affected by this, even as it goes on. Um, so just kind of a recognition with that. But Evan, what, what do we do about this? <laughs> What do we do about it? Holy fuck, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there is a, a ton of solutions being pitched. Basically, it comes down to um, we need to decarbonize the electric grid. That's a huge part of it. Uh, yeah. When, before we get into this, I want to say. If okay, you... that's fine. Please, please save me from this. Okay. Okay. Well, then I can <laughs> save you from this. Um, oh, man. <laughs> so there's actually um, this blog or newsletter that I really lo- like. It's called Volts from uh, a climate reporter named David Roberts. He used to be at Vox and now he just does his own newsletter. Um, I highly recommend it. And you know, he's written a series of pieces on like, what do we do? Um, you know, like actual concrete things, because, you know, there's so much about climate that we talk about and, you know, it's all a bunch of P, you know, fragments, but, you know, if you boil it down, what do we actually do? One of them is making sure to decarbon, to, uh, decarbon electricity generation. Yeah, um, yeah, like I yeah. said. <laughs> yeah, like you said. Yeah, that's why I interjected. All right, I did um, a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, 
this is the big thing. We have the technology to do it between nuclear and, uh, you know, wind and solar and all this kind of stuff. This is just the top level. This is what we need to do. We need to make sure that our electricity generation is not generating carbon um, because, you know, electricity generation is the big part of it. Um, and, um, you know, everything else kind of stems from that. Um, the other one is, um, you know, once everything, all the electricity generation is decarboned to turn to making sure that everything's electric, which it's coming along. You know, a lot of things are becoming electrified and more viable to become electrified. So, you know, that's kind of the two-step process of making sure that happens. But then another one was, you know, in the end of the day, if we are going to um, really be able to hit our emissions goal, we have to in some way make carbon energy more expensive, um, which is a tough, tough thing politically to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, whether it's a carbon tax, whether it's cap and trade, but it just needs to happen. And I, there's also one thing I, I want to bring up because there's this meme that floats around that I want to, I want to address a little bit. Um, Evan, do, can you guess what that meme is? Um, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> there, there's this common trope out there that, um, you know, there's a report that came out a few years ago that said, um, a hundred corporations are responsible for 70%. Oh, of okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I see this brought up, and yes, it is true. A hundred corporations account for 70% of uh, global emissions. But sometimes I see it as specked out that, you know, these are like U.S. companies and we just need to tax them or, you know, what have you, take their riches um, Evan, could you guess the top five emitting companies in the world? Um, British Petroleum? Nope. Coca-Cola? They're number 11. No. Uh, Coca-Cola is not on the list, I don't believe. Um, Exxon? Exxon is number five. Yeah, all right. I got one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah <laughs> so the top five is the China coal industry. Two is Saudi Americo or Aramco. There we go. Um, number three is Gazprom, a, uh, the Russian natural gas company. Number four is National Iranian Oil. And then number five is ExxonMobil. So... Yes, these companies and industries create a fuck ton of emissions, you know, the kind of and, you know, if we go down the list, they're all all just energy companies. You know, it, it's not it's not like Evan said, like Coca-Cola, a industry that, you know, you know, like it just 
accidentally, incidentally, in the process of making Coca-Cola makes a whole lot of emissions. These are companies that make their money off of burning fuels in order to make money. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially the top hundred corp, you know, uh, polluting corporations in the country, you know, in the world. Um, but you know, I don't know how much you know someone in the U.S. or even someone in U.S. politics can really do about the Chinese coal industry, mm-hmm. which is just like by and afar the biggest player in emissions. Um, so it just, um, yeah, it's, it's not as cut and dry. I mean, if there was some way we could kind of do a global carbon tax, that'd be a way, but we just currently don't have the, you know, infrastructure to do something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but there is some things that um, can, you know, if you're looking for something politically within the United States, another uh, David Roberts piece that I read was, you know, we see a lot of times um, and I'll if, it, if it's a free post, I'll post it. Um, it's, you know, people will throw around um, ending subsidies to oil companies in the United States. And he actually took a look at it and what that would mean. Um, probably the biggest one, um, oil companies are able to fully write off upfront all expenses related to finding and drilling for new wells. So, which is a just huge thing. And it, you know, it doesn't even, a uh, well doesn't even have to produce oil for them to be able to write off those expenses. And we don't want new wells to be explored and found, um, you know, in the past when, you know, you were wanting more energy and more energy meant more oil. You wanted people, you know, these companies to explore and it did really well. It really helped them explore by giving them this huge tax write off for all the expenses related to that. But now we don't want them exploring for new oil. Um, so we should, you know, if you're ever asked, you know, what are these so-called subsidies that um, the oil companies enjoy, um, the subsidy for writing off uh, the expenses for exploring for new oil is is a concrete thing that you could ask for. Talk to your senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. But it, but yeah, this is just so big. Um, you know, it's 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 both beyond the individual, but we also need all the individuals to make actions. Um, it's it's tough, you know, like I remember there was talk earlier this year of like raising the gas tax and, you know, that set off a fury because. In the end. You know, it's still all of us who are using this energy Mm -hmm. to live our lives. And it's also us who, you know, bear the responsibility. I mean, like, you know, those big companies who do all the pollution, they're doing the pollution because people are using their product and want their product. Yeah, it's not like... 
It's not like ExxonMobil is just like at some factory just like burning up gasoline and putting the carbon into the air like their gasoline is going into our cars and our cars are burning it and putting it into the air because we need yeah. it to drive to our jobs and our hobbies and yeah. whatever's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but it's yeah, it's it's tough because it's a large crisis that we need to make at like the systems level. But even if we change it at the systems level, it's still requiring, at least in the short term, changes to our behavior. Um, so it's like, and, and just also these investing in these big pieces of machinery that we use in our lives, you know? So like, you know, one thing I did this year was I bought a house and I needed a lawnmower. So I got an electric lawnmower. Um, it's more efficient than a gas powered lawnmower. And it's, you know, it was found, you know, I, I'm just going to say if any of you can, you know, reduce your usage of a small gas powered motor, that's great because a study came out that showed, you know, running a a gasoline string trimmer for 30 minutes had the same climate effect as driving a Ford F-150 for 3,800 miles. Wow. Uh, yeah, because small engines are just so inefficient at using the gasoline that they, um, instead of just pure carbon, they exhaust an aerosol which is just way more climate affecting. So one thing. So how you can, does your how does your electric mower work? I've I've never. So I have that. a so I have a really long extension cord. Um, okay. Yeah. So it, so there are kind of two versions of the electrified lawn care implements. There's the corded. And then there's the battery powered. Uh, battery powered are way more expensive. So I bought my corded lawnmower for about $140. Whereas a, an, a, a battery electric one is like five to $600. Mm. Um, yeah, because I when I used to do yard work, my uh, edge trimmer was corded so i would just plug it in but i i guess i would be more scared like running a cord through a mower like how do you how, how do you not like uh run over the cord and like fuck shit up well you have to you have to make your mowing route with that in mind gotcha um i i'm always kind of testing out new patterns to more efficiently um, mow my lawn without having to reposition the cord because that's that's the real name of the game every time you have to reposition the cord that's just taking up time mowing the lawn so mm. trying to figure out you know between where my outlets are you know where my lawn is you know what pattern do i do where i don't really have to ever reposition the cord like I am not mowing in the pattern that I would with a gas mower, but it also really doesn't change a ton about, you know, which pattern I choose to do. But if you're really particular about that, that can be a thing. But 
um, you know, it works just like a regular mower otherwise. You just got to keep in mind where the cord is. Mm-hmm. But but that's and then also just like my I don't have a ton of things in my yard, whereas if I had a ton of things in my yard, that would definitely make things more difficult. Um, you know, when you have open spaces, you're not having to get the cord around things. But, you know, if I had a bunch of stuff in my yard, I'd have to get the cord around things. So but if you're able to um replace your uh, lawn care engines with electric alternatives. That's a way to really um, do a very high bang for your buck carbon reduction or carbon footprint reduction by getting an electric mower and string trimmer. Just getting rid of those small gas powered engines is really good. Um, at least on your individual carbon footprint plan. But then also like we need to, you know, further move into it. Like I'm looking at the cost of, you know, getting solar panels installed on my house and getting an electric car sometime in the near future, but they're still very expensive. But, you know, if you're looking to buy a new car, try and wait a couple years because the price of electric cars have been coming down pretty dramatically. And it may be the case that you may, you know, in a couple few years will be able to afford an electric vehicle, which would be good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming along, but I don't know if just the pure market is going to be able to suffice in that realm, but mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's coming along, but not coming along at the pace that's really needed to stave off the the worst effects of climate change. Yeah. Um, and I know we've been talking a lot about emission reduction here, and obviously that's got to be part of the solution. But as you're hearing, there are very real reasons why we are apprehensive about the rate of change in terms of emission reduction. So there are other more off-the-wall strategies that have been proposed. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Ministry for the Future, which is a speculative sci-fi, but it's hard sci-fi, so the author Kim Stanley Robinson really dug into the science of it, of trying to find other ways to slow climate change or slow the effects of climate change. So let me just kind of rattle them off and then we'll see we'll see what Joe wants to <laughs> wants to pick up on. So obviously carbon capture is a big thing. There are some technologies which can sort of take the carbon in the air and store it, say for instance underground. So that would obviously reduce the amount of carbon in the air and hopefully slow the effects of warming. Um, there's also various geoengineering techniques that have been proposed, basically reorienting our physical environment to better be able to deal with climate change. In the Ministry for the Future, the nation of India basically shoots up a bunch of uh, a compound that is equivalent to like volcanic ash so that it sort of blocks out some of the sun's rays and reduces the amount of heating that is able to occur in in the nation so that's that's something akin to geoengineering 
in terms of sort of incentivizing the transition away from carbon emission and towards carbon capture, the book talks about establishing a carbon cryptocurrency that would need to be backed by a central bank where basically you you award uh, a carbon coin or whatever you want to call it to a company or a nation that captures a certain amount of carbon and then you guarantee it at a really high rate of return so that it will become financially attractive to companies to pursue carbon capture as opposed to carbon emission. And then you pair that with a carbon tax and you get sort of a, a carrot and a stick working simultaneously to incentivize companies to stop burning and start capturing. This is sometimes called like carbon quantitative easing because yeah. you do end up yeah, you, you put a lot of extra money out into the world via these uh, carbon cryptos, but hopefully it incentivizes people to stop destroying. I mean, the yeah, planet. the idea, yeah, it's like you know, it's going to cost the government money to mitigate the cost of carbon down the road. So why don't we just pay people to not do it to begin with? You know? Yeah, I'm down for it. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's tough to convince any one government to be the one that steps up to make right. the carbon crypto because there's sort of like a first mover disadvantage there. Um, and then the, the other thing that I want to talk about, just cause I thought this was so wild in the book, basically one of the problems with climate change is sea level rise, right? We're going to endanger coastal cities. It's really bad. If um, there's extra water out there cause it increases severe weather events like hurricanes and cyclones and so one proposed solution is to slow the rate at which glaciers slide into the ocean. So I didn't realize this, but I guess glaciers are always kind of sliding off of their rock beds towards the ocean, but just like a little tiny. Yeah, bit. they used to move like a matter of feet, you know? Yeah. But now that things are getting warmer, they're melting faster, and the problem with that is, is that when the ice slides, not only do you have whatever temperature is causing that little bit of ice melt, but you get sort of a frictional heat that just creates an accelerating process, and once the, the glacier, once the sheet of ice kind of falls into the water, it melts much more quickly when it's surrounded by the water than when it's surrounded by the cooler air on the glacier. And so uh, one of these avant-garde solutions that Kim Stanley Robinson is pitching in this book, which again is a novel, but there's a lot of non-narrative stuff going on. It. It's, it's wild. It's interesting. Um, but the pitch is that if you just pump some of the water back into the bottom of the glacier, that water will refreeze and slow the rate of glacial descent back to sort of pre-climate change levels. You know, you have to you have to burn a little bit of energy to pump the water up, but that the benefit of not having those big sheets of ice falling into the water are are probably worth it. So there you go. There's there's my rapid fire weird climate solutions pitches. What what else we got? <laughs> um there's also one that's out there that um this idea that we build like a giant mirror and put it up into our atmosphere um to re reflect sunlight away because the whole mechanism 
of climate change is that the sun is, um, you know, producing sunlight and heat energy and it's beaming it onto the earth. And normally what would happen is that some of it stays and it's captured by the atmosphere and then the rest is just reflected away. Whereas when we have more carbon in the atmosphere, that ends up trapping more of the sun's energy on Earth, thus warming the planet. So if we could put a like a big old mirror or, you know, some sort of, you know, giant Reflective device service, yeah. yeah, off in the you know, high in the atmosphere and reflect some of the sun out, you know, thus not receiving that level energy, that could be something. But then also that's just crazy. (laughs) Um, um, Like something that is a, a solution that it's, you know, ability to be made is just like so beyond our technology right now. Yeah, I like how it's basically the pitch of Mr. Burns blocking the sun from Springfield so that they have to use nuclear power. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I think at one point they do this in uh, Futurama when they're talking about climate change as well. Um, oh, you know. the Futurama solution is great because they just, they're, the Halley's Comet, whenever it passes, they send a drill team up and they just drill out a huge chunk of ice and then they just drop it into the ocean so that it cools the ocean back down. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's, that's one of the fantastical things. But the real, the real nuts and bolts of it is really, um, I mean, we still individuals need to try and do some sort of action. Like I said before, a lot of it is just replacing these machines within our lives that produce energy. So um, you can also have a climate impact if you are able to replace your um, st- gas stoves, gas water heaters, gas furnaces. Um, if you convert well, the gas furnace, that that technology isn't quite there in the electric world yet, at least for Midwest winter temperatures. But um, yeah, if you can reduce the amount of natural gas you use in your house or your living environment, uh, that helps contribute to um, lowering emissions. And then again, if you're able to replace any of your small motors um, like a lawnmower or a string trimmer or a leaf blower that is also extremely helpful in lowering your emissions. And then, you know, once you get a little bit further up, if you're able to um, install any sort of solar power where you live, um, if you're able to afford that, that also greatly reduces your emissions. And then also just finally, if your car. You know, if you're able to replace your gas powered car with, you know, even a hybrid um, car, those are pretty cheap these days. If you're able to get one of those, that can also help reduce your emissions if most of your driving is around town. Um, But even still, just generally reduce your interest. You don't you don't have to if you're not able to afford a full electric car yet. 
um, a hybrid can still do it. And even just getting a car that's very fuel efficient also helps. So, so here's one that I hear, and I feel like it's been explained to me, but I it, it's not with me right now. People say that eating less meat is helpful to climate change. Can, can you explain that to me? The general theory of it is that it takes, it's kind of two prong. It takes a lot of energy to um, produce meat. And then also um, specifically cows. Cows create a lot of methane. Um, you know, they, when they are taking their foodstuffs and, um, you know, converting it into, um, muscle and all that stuff that we will eventually eat. They also create a lot of methane that, um, and methane is a gas that is something like four to 10, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's it's uh, multiples more harming in the atmosphere in terms of climate than carbon is. Um, so how but, granular can we get here? Like, how why why does producing meat, why is it so energy intensive? Like, I, I, I you don't have to know this well, because, I mean, I sure yeah. don't know it, but I, 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 I want to understand. It's something that's a debate um, because... There have been before studies that said meat production is like 15% of all, you know, uh, greenhouse gases. And, but if you go and look at the report that said that, they took everything involved with the meat industry all bundled in. I mean, that's like including carbon from the transportation that's including uh, carbon from, you know, the water systems, you know. Yeah, and that's a little non-unique because any food would consume those right. and you know, resources. And, you know, and when you look at other industries, you don't bundle everything involved yeah. with it. You, you look at the individual industry. Um, so that's, I mean, it may not be as energy intensive as I originally stated, but it's just like. But then also, you know, if you look at it from a different respect, I mean, these um, bovine animals have occurred naturally in North America before and, you know, in our bison populations and the um, the understood uh, number from scientists of what the peak bison population in the United States was before we came and killed them all was something roughly 60 million. And today there are roughly 60 million heads of cattle in the United States. So there is a kind of equivalent bovine population in North America than to what there had been before. Um, and, and cattle are also able to feed off of and make, um, lands productive that wouldn't be otherwise able to use. So there's this concept in farming called arable land, and that's all the land that's suitable for growing crops on. And not all land is arable land, but cows can go and graze 
on non-arable land, thus making that land productive. But but not all cattle are you know raised in pastures anymore. But then also, you know, we have, are able to use efficiencies within the feed corn industry to, um, you know, better able, more efficiently, you know, make cows. So it's it's kind of it's a hotly debated topic of whether cows are a true culprit of global warming and if it's something that we should do something about. So, but, but on the whole, if you eat a little less meat, a little less meat will be produced and that can, at least in the short term, have some climate, you know, carbon footprint reducing effects. Okay. I appreciate the context. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. It's it, like I said, it's hotly debated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's not even getting into the morality of modern farming practices and all that, which kind we of have stuff. talked about to yeah. our credit. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a complex subject and who knows, I'm sure I'm going to make somebody mad <laughs> with my explanation of it. So, because it's so hotly talked about, but yell yeah, at so, us at podcast at adequately Yeah, go for it. Um, or message us on Facebook. Because you probably are friends with us, but um, or at least the page, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, all the things I described before, uh, reducing your consumption of meat can have an effect on uh, your carbon footprint. And you know, just try and I don't know. It's all the same things. I mean, there are big things and small things you can do. Like, I mean, yeah, taking a uh, public transit ride will help reduce your carbon footprint than instead of driving, you know, to the place. But, you know, we're not going to solve this crisis by all of us taking public transportation um, whenever we're able to. It's just it again, this is a problem that requires big systems level um, solutions, but then also needs changes to individual behavior where neither one is necessarily going to be able to shoulder the entire effect of the issue. So yeah, it's, it's not great, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, um, you know, if anything, this report removes the uncertainty that, you know, maybe there's, we don't need to do things or that it'll just be all right. Or, you know, it's certain things are going to get warmer. Things are going to get worse, but at least at this point, we really know what we can do. So, yeah. But how do we do it? (laughs) And that's what we can't get over. That's, that's the mountain we have not climbed. It needs people deliberately spending money, their money, in ways that decarbon or decarbons their life. Yeah, or um, their communities. The report, I think, said that we would need a five-fold increase in decarbonization spending to achieve anything meaningful. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just so, so much not there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing because. 
I mean, this is like we talked about in the last episode. This is like the tragedy of the commons. The commons is the global climate. And not only is, you know, one country's emissions not, you know, solely responsible for destroying the climate, you know, it's also that, you know, no one individual's emissions are responsible for destroying the climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, there are some people who are more culpable than others. There are countries that are more culpable than others. Um, but as a whole, um, you know, it's kind of everybody's responsibility. But there are some real downsides to um, being someone who really takes it seriously. You take a financial hit for that. Um, I mean, Clean energy uh, technologies are coming along um, in certain or a a fair amount of areas. They're actually uh, more cost competitive than coal. But then, you know, you still have the issues of storage, which, you know, solutions are coming along. It's just not as fast as we would hope. You know, it's not deployable like right now. Um. But like, you know, I'm like I said earlier, I'm looking at, you know, installing solar panels on my house and buying an electric car. But if I do those, then I'm kind of skirting on the like financial planning I want to do to be able to save for retirement and be in a better financial position. Like I would be really leveraging my personal finances to make that happen. And I would have some, you know, big monthly payments to pay back to make that happen. But, you know, you, you know, that's the cost of, um, reducing your carbon footprint through that means. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you take that and scale it up to an economy wide thing, you know, there's a lot of jobs and new technologies and efficiencies to be had. But I mean, we're getting on the cusp I believe where the market, um, you know, it's just going to be more feasible to do the clean energies, but it's still just not quite there. And it's also all that technology wasn't quite there, like especially a decade ago. Um, It's just it's complex and, you know, it, it takes big action. I mean, the infrastructure bills that are coming through Congress are, you know, promising i mean they have climate stuff in them not nearly to the magnitude that it feels is needed but you know it's something so it's it's a difficult problem that everyone kind of wants to point fingers and make uh you know dick grand declarations that in x years in the future things are going to be better but then again not really do anything in the today yeah yeah (laughs) And really can't end this one on a high note because <laughs> there just really isn't one. Yeah, yeah. The report just said uh, we're 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 not stopping it, guys. It's coming, and we're running out of time. Yeah, and I mean, hitting that two degrees one is very optimistic. Like that's that's a very big change, of course, in the next couple of years. Um, Whereas who knows if that's going to happen. And, and again, like it's, it's a global problem. So the U S has been the highest in emissions 
but the emissions per capita per capita in the United States are now at levels as low as what it was in 1918. But it's still a lot of emissions because we have a fuck ton of people. But also we've been able to bring emissions per person down in our country. Yeah, um, and there so, is sort of this global asymmetry to it because if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the U.S. is responsible for more cumulative carbon emissions than any other nation. But we are not the biggest polluters year over year at this point. We have been passed. Yeah. And so, you know, we built our economic strength on burning fossil fuels and emitting carbon. And so now I you, you can understand how a nation like China would distrust us for saying, well, now we all got to stop. You know, we 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 got ours. We developed on this. But now, you know, fuck you. Oh, yeah. Like there there's this issue that happened. It has been happening in Madagascar where. Um, they have been burning down a whole lot of their forests because um, it's worth a lot of money to make charcoal out of it. And that's helping their economic situation in that country. But then it's also destroying their forests and releasing all this carbon out into mm-hmm. the atmosphere. So, you know, and you by get- destroying the trees, they're eliminating tools naturally occurring tools that we have to process carbon (laughs) right and you know we can go and say hey you know we shouldn't do this on this world but then again it's like they're living in poverty yep and that's something to help alleviate that somewhat and you know this is like the whole thing with the amazon rainforest like a lot of it is getting chopped down in order to make farmland or to be burned down as fuel, which is to help alleviate poverty in Brazil. And, you know, they and sometimes the the government has been able to put a stop to that kind of stuff to help preserve the rainforest and the capacity it does to help be a carbon sink. But then again, it's like, well, is the rest of the world going to pay Brazil, you know, money to help, you know, bring its people out of poverty? Or are they going to use their own resources that we're piggybacking off of um, to make their own prosperity? Yeah. Um, and it's just tough because, I mean, <sighs> there some people will say that, you know, capitalism is necessarily extractive and you know will always make carbon and that's been true to this point but not everything needs to be extractive i mean really once we get to carbon free electricity i mean use as much carbon free electricity as you want i mean And can afford because it's not an issue. The only reason why we say to reduce now is because it produces carbon, um, which is having external effects. And I mean, hell, I'm even saying to this in my house that I set the AC to like 65. I'm not perfect, you know, like I use a lot of energy as well. We're not um, on the ivory tower, damn it. Yeah, yeah, we're not on the ivory tower. We are definitely not doing what we need to do as well. It's just, it's difficult. 
It's very difficult. Yeah, it is. Also, feel free to have kids if you want. It's not as big of a carbon thing <laughs> as people make it out to be. I mean, I feel like people should still be able to have the right to have children if they want. I yeah, mean, this is not a degrowth podcast. Yeah, very anti-degrowth. And I mean, what's the point of fighting climate change if we're not going to have any kids later? You know? Yeah. If we're the last ones, fuck it. Let's just live it up. <laughs> Last let's humans. let society burn until all that's left is a DVD box set of friends. <laughs> and then I put on the, the full house theme song, even though that's not friends. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere you, you look, everywhere's a hot. So wow, I, I guess that's as, that's as upbeat as we can leave it at. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we've dug into the full house library this episode, so. Yeah. So, Evan, you got anything else you want to say? Let's uh, let's address the viewer mail that we got real quick um, in terms of an end segment. End segments are always fun. Um, so this is from listener Michelle. So Michelle heard our show last week, and apparently we, we made a, a mistake in terms of the order of magnitude on the potential lethality of the COVID-19 vaccine. So on the show, we had mentioned that it was about 0.1%, which to us seemed very low. And we were like, yeah, that's stupid. Why would anyone be afraid yeah, that of 0.1%? For, we, were, we were trying, we sent out a number that we thought was stupid low and would be inconsequential. <laughs> yes. And yet, um, Michelle, with her diligent fact-checking, has pointed out that the actual rate of death for those who have received the COVID-19 vaccine is 0.0019%. And although, you know, it does kind of seem like, oh, they're both such small numbers, but that's actually like orders of magnitude safer. And Joe and I were willing to accept 0.1%, but it's, you know, <laughs> like a hundred times safer than that. Or I guess like 50 times safer. Um, yeah. If I mess up that math, someone will let me know. Um, so... All this is to say, thank you for pointing it out, because I do believe that it is a statistically significant reduction in <laughs> <Yeah>. risk. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of the day, the vaccine's really safe, guys. Very safe. Take it if you haven't yet. Well, yeah, you know, when I saw that, I was like, man, it's so easy to do uh, fake news and misinformation, even if you're trying to, you know, convey <laughs> something. Even, even in good faith. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's why I always hate those fact checks where it's like, uh, you know, like the president said, oh, there's a 75 percent increase in this. And then they come back. Um, actually, it was a 54.5 percent increase. And it's like, well, you know, had the general direction going. <laughs> but but this is something that warrants um, recall, because, yeah, that's just an order of magnitude less than what we were saying. Um, just so much less than what we were saying. And we were trying to convey a very small number, but the actual number was just so, so much, so smaller much smaller than, than what <laughs> yeah. we were saying. So. so there you go. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you to all our listeners. Um, yeah, we hope that you've enjoyed the episode as always. Shout out us at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. 
Um, hopefully I remember all the links to put in the show notes. Um, but, <laughs> and thank you, Anthony Hitch for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.